So Carrie Ballinger is normally known to most of you. Carrie is the founding director of Rover School, and Carrie founded at RBS at Columbia in 1983, brought it to Robert School, UVA in 1992, where the school has thrived. Carrie um, has been serving as a judge for the RBS UVA Fellowship since its inception, and is now going to discuss the projects we received this year, the very fine projects, and the winners of the annual work with program. I'm not going to discuss anything. <laughs> <laughs> Touch on. Chloe Down Wells studies the history of photography and the development of modernism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, researching relationships between photography and other artistic media. Her recent master's paper, The Duke de Luynes' Modern Vision of Antiquity, Sculpture, Polychromy, and Photography in 19th century France, shed lights on Luynes' unique mode of viewing and picturing the antique by relating his projects in polychrome sculpture and his lesser known photographic pursuits. A fascinating man, he commissioned modern copies of antique sculpture and then had them painted in ways that were surely faithful to the original, but which uh, modern times have still not yet uh, brought themselves to accept. After graduating from UVA with high distinction for her senior thesis in art history, she worked for four years as a researcher and executive assistant in the Impressionist and Modern Art Department at Sotheby's New York for four years, and then as an exhibition assistant in the Department of Photographs at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. She returned to UVA to work on a PhD in the McIntyre Department of Art. At Rare Book School last year, she took James Riley and Ryan Boatwright's course on the identification of photographic processes. She seeks scholarship and exhibition projects that go beyond traditional categories of the museum, as well as to enhance our understandings of fine arts as it relates to photography. I'm pleased to award down West Honorable Mention in the 2017 contest. literature at UVA, where she hopes to complete her PhD in 2019. Her current research concerns questions of experimental form and the novel, with a focus on American 20th and 21st century novels. When I was a doctoral student at Columbia, William York Tyndall taught living novelists. It was a scandal. <laughs> he taught Mary Renault. It was in 1963. 
in those days, modern literature at Columbia started with Mark Twain. Thomas <laughs> <coughs> Wallace. Her dissertation, tentatively titled Assembled Art Worlds, the Composite Text and Formal Hybridity in Contemporary Fiction. Hybridity? Seeks to rethink the ways. One of the advantages of being very old is that you can misbehave. <laughs> Her dissertation seeks to rethink the ways we discuss genre by focusing on works that combine various media and genres. Instead of dividing poetry from fiction, for example, other contemporary texts experiment by being both. The six papers submitted this year were the best I have read since I began helping to judge this contest. Samantha Wallace's entry for this award was genuinely excellent, perhaps the best I have read in six years. It's a pleasure to award the first prize in the 2017 
In focusing on the composite work, we can better understand ways that the ways that contemporary literature has become formally attuned to the strengths and limitations of the form and concept as a book of a book as a technology, the influences of digital media, and a contemporary moment distinguished by theories of hybridity, networks, and assemblage. Before getting underway, though, I should say that it's my personal opinion that the current essay or presentation format in which we researchers, I, offer you polished airtight arguments, pruned of their trials and errors, mishaps, and even grammatical errors, performs something of a white lie. What I mean is that the essay in this form offers itself to us all, always already perfectly constructed in form and content. It speciously lacks a genealogy of attempt, revision, and sometimes sheer wrongness. Anyone who has written, attempted a PhD, written an essay, or I think generally lived life, will tell you that these experiences are instead constitutionally composed of many moments of humbling wrongness, painstaking revision, and many, many attempts before one alights on that epiphanic moment in which ideas click or illuminate themselves in prose. At least this is what I hope is true as I start out on my dissertation. And anyone who tells you that his dissertation came absolutely preformed as is, just waiting to be written, as if he were Zeus and his dissertation Athena sprung wholly aged and battle-ready from his literal godhead, is just talking nonsense. Just as we who study bibliography and book culture know that no text comes to its reader born in its ideal form from its author's head, Every project, dissertation, work of art, etc., has a story, a lineage, a social narrative constructed out of many varied and sometimes conflicting, oftentimes failed attempts, compromises, and designs. When assembled, however, these events direct our attention to what Jerome began. I don't know you, but I know your work. You don't know me. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> what Jerome began has called the social. <laughs> collaborative nature of texts. So in the spirit of this kind of address, I'll begin the narrative of my project with an embarrassing story that, which is not just meeting Jerome again here at this podium, it's a different one. <laughs> Error literally brought me to the rare book school. In my first year as a PhD student, 2014, I was writing on Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, I looked specifically at the prepositional force of a particular sentence in Addie Bundren's central section of the novel. I wanted to refocus critical conversation to take into account an oddly but intentionally placed preposition. Words don't ever fit even what they are trying to say at, Addie says from beyond the grave. How does Addie's colloquial use of at redirect the linguistic force of a novel so concerned with enclosed spaces? The coffin, for one. Shortly after completing the seminar version of this paper, I went to view the holograph manuscript at the Albert and Shirley Small Special Collections Library. This is where I could see in real life, ritualistically almost, all of the minutia I had painstakingly poured over in writing this essay, animated in Faulkner's cramped but complicated blue ink handwriting. Perhaps you see where this is going. At the prepositional linchpin of my then purely formal argument, as I found out, does not appear in Faulkner's 1929 manuscript. <laughs> it was instead introduced in carbon typescript, which Faulkner signed in January of 1930. So shock and horror, you might say, best describe what I felt in that moment reviewing the manuscript. I'm pretty sure I started sweating. Here was my paper completed and founded upon a word, one concept that didn't exist in the manuscript. <laughs> and more. 
regretting everything. Once I got over that, however, I realized I had stumbled onto something potentially as interesting as my initial idea. While comparing Abby's chapters in the holograph manuscript and the carbon typescript, I came across a few other inconsistencies, edits and changes, that served to re-enliven my understanding of texts. What we might consider statically complete objects are instead very much alive with changes, as we know. And these revisions impact our readings of them. Encountering the materiality of As I Lay Dying in this way not only allowed me to make a more accurate argument about what was in the work, but the materiality actually made my argument more complex. I had stumbled unwittingly onto a wonderful synthesis of the formal and the material. So in printed books and analysis, printed books since 1800, description and analysis, the rare book school course I attended last summer, Peter Schillingberg stressed the value of providing a narrative of the trajectory of a work in order to give the reader a fair topography of the possible options in a work's history of development. In addition to teaching us how to distinguish woven from lay paper, goat from pig, compact from sheepskin, Professor Schillingsberg aimed to imbue us with textual awareness. We may not know all of the answers, he said, but we can point out where the problems might be. Just so. And as I moved forward into my dissertation research the following year, I found myself wanting to formally close read the way Professor Schillingsberg had taught us to materially read a book as a physical object. Any text, then, is the result of pressures coming from various channels prior to publication, just as it can be extended post-publication by future editions, paratext, and even reader community operations like online message boards and reading groups. It is an assemblage of material instantiations and temporal events that come together in the book. The word assemblage carries with it theoretical and art historical weight. Philosophers Deleuze and Guattari have described the theoretical model of the assemblage, a synonym for composite, as a structural body in which the relationships of component parts are not stable or fixed. In 1961, a Museum of Modern Art curator, William Chapman Sykes, defined the assemblage as, quote, a work of art made by fastening together cut or torn pieces of paper, clippings from newspapers, photographs, bits of cloth, fragments of wood, metal, or other such artifacts, unquote. And I see these traditions of the theoretical, the art historical, and the bibliographic as all intertwined. Like the idea of an event, which Deleuze and Guattari assert is an ever-changing problem for thought, a text, as discussed by Jerome McGann, is a similarly constructed problem for critics. All works are then by this definition composite, which I think is constitutionally true. But what about works that intentionally foreground composition and their composite nature into the formal fibers of their narratives? Jerome McGann has argued in the textual condition that poetry specifically takes textual activity as its main subject. Quote, poetical texts operate to display their own practices, to put them forward as a subject of attention. Unquote. And I see composite texts applying that same logic the self-conscious representation of their form and composition through narrative play and formal features displaying heterogeneity and their assembly. Thus, composition becomes an experimental technique in its own right, related to earlier 20th century experiments in collage, multimedia, illustration, and typography, and later 20th century experiments with metafiction and pastiche. If metafiction can be defined as a technique in which an author self-consciously draws attention to the text status as a work of imagination, rather than reality, then composite works deploy this logic materially. They intentionally, visibly represent their material features of composition. They are artifactual. 
So to talk about these ideas using examples, I'm just going to take our attention to poet, novelist, and scholar Anne Carson and her 2010 elegy, Knox. You have a handout all sort of flag when we hit the figures that I'm talking about, but that's what that handout, those are all from Knox. Um, I want to focus on three of Knox's formal features. First is Carson's choice of materials, which she renders visibly as part of her project. Knox is a self-aware reflection on materiality. Textured brushstrokes, shadows from Carson's copy machine at the seams of the unbound book, and handcrafted assemblage vivify the elegy. In this way, it's not just a linguistic feat, it is self-consciously material. Second, Knox is composite. Carson assembles her materials, both textual and visual, into the multimedia elegy. Finally, the result of Carson's choice of raw materials and her composition involves the readers in the aesthetic sensibility of Knox, which comes through in the fragmented framing of materials and the sparse telling of her brother's life. It's experiential. Carson's elegy for her brother Michael comes in a box. It's plain and gray with a strip of color and the flash of a ripped photo. An adolescent boy in swim trunks, goggles, and flippers looks out from the cover. That's figure three. Quote 1.0. I wanted to fill my elegy with light of all kinds, but death makes us stingy. Unquote. 1.0 is Carson's entry point into her inquiry of mourning, of reconstructing a life through memory, and Knox's aesthetic manifesto, stingy. What does it mean to be stingy or reticent or sparing in the context of grief? <coughs> Lesson. 1.0 continues, quote, There is nothing more to be expended on that we think he's dead. Love cannot alter it. Words cannot alter it. No matter how I try to evoke the starry lad he was, it remains a plain odd history. So I begin to think about history. Unquote. History, as Carson unwinds it almost forensically, appears as an exchange in Knox between the elements of the multimedia elegy. Knox is composed of photos, abstract renderings of color, fragments of Michael's postcards to his family, and Carson's unfurling translation of Catullus's poem 101, which was written in memoriam of Catullus's own brother. The accretion of these materials, which Carson assembled herself 10 years prior to Knox's publication, forms the elegy. In this way, Knox is tangible. The text is a facsimile of Carson's original designs and deeply composite. But Carson is stingy with her unfolding of the story of Michael's death and her rendering of the narrative sparing. Transcriptions of her brother's phone calls are truncated. Letters are ripped into fragments and presented piecemeal or covered over by what might be black charcoal and made half legible. You can see that in figures one and two, examples of that. The boy on the cover, figure three, whom we can presume to be Michael, looks askance at us from under the cover of his opaque goggles. Stingy. Furthermore, Carson's modes for weaving composition into Knox, I would highlight translation and collage, act as both the process of making and as a metaphor for the process of her grieving. She subtly adjusts the Oxford Latin dictionary entries for each word of Catullus's poem. She tears and fragments images and letters. She delays an English translation of Catullus's poem until almost the end. The result is a work that could be read through quickly and with ease. The margins of each page are wide in proportion to the amount of text per page, will say, if you put this on an oral exam list, you'll be really happy that it has so much margin space. But Knox's import would surely be lost if one were to read through quickly and without care. Carson's artistry is subtle, stingy, both in the arrangement of her words and with the layout of each page. Knox is very clearly made. 
One explanation for Knox's material emphasis is the fact that Carson actually did construct an elegy in a book 10 years prior to Knox's publication by New Directions in 2010. In an interview with Brick Literary Journal, the interviewer asks Carson about her rationale for presenting Knox as an artifact. Carson responds, because I made the book myself at first, I bought an empty book and filled it with stuff, painted it, glued it, stapled it on. Robert Curry, my husband, said that the thing about the book is, because it's handmade, when you read it, you're pulled into these people and these thoughts and the thing that it is. If you want to reproduce it, it has to have that quality still." Unquote. Knox is not only clearly handmade, it also gives us the impression that by being handmade, it is one of a kind, which Carson claims spoke to her of the personal nature of elegy. But Knox may not have seen the light of day as a public artifact were it not for a snafu related to one of the kind objects. Carson says an unnamed German publisher actually lost the original for almost three years after mailing it to him. Carson recounts its rediscovery, quote, then one day it showed up unannounced in a FedEx package. So I thought, time to make this permanent, unquote. In this case, permanent refers not to the material nature of Knox, but to its reproducibility. Walter Benjamin wrote, as early as 1935, of the revolution of mechanical reproduction, which simultaneously liberated art for consumption by the masses while destroying its aura, that, quote, strange tissue of space and time, the unique apparition of distance, no matter how near it may be, of the unique art object, unquote. How have literary works in a period in which words have been freed from the limitations of the page and the confines of the book responded? Knox counters this question, I think, by complicating Benjamin's assertion that mechanical reproduction destroys an artwork's aura. Benjamin relates the decay of art's aura to the masses' desires to get closer to the artwork and to destroy the uniqueness of the thing. Benjamin would see Carson's 2000 pre-mechanical reproduction version of Knox as not in contradiction with its singular erratic qualities. Carson's manuscripts may only be viewed personally and may never be exhibited publicly. It is, in Benjamin's sense, authentic. But Carson turns the screw again by self-consciously representing the material processes of Knox's composition formally, of making the book which New Directions markets look one of a kind, while at the same time being clearly mass-produced. For example, you can see the shading of Curry's, her partner's Xerox uh, machine, often on the pages. As a result, although Knox may not be authentic in the sense that it is singular, I think it nevertheless manages to maintain and compose its own aura. Carson plays with the forming concept of the book in the same way. It both is and is not a book. Knox also explicitly meets many of the requirements of the genre of the novel, although it's often considered poetry. It has lengthy, if loose, narrative that is book-length, while explicitly breaking many of these same rules. The non-traditional binding, for one, the non-fictional subject matter, another. Like other of her works that identify as half scholarly and half prose, or poetry, sorry, Eros the Bittersweet, or half prose and half poetry, Red Dock, Carson allows Knox to reside somewhere in between the categories of book and not book. What is critical about her technique is that she does not subordinate the form of the book to its content, nor does she raise the form of the book above the status of its content. Instead, the form and concept of the book are marshaled harmoniously into the discordant telling of Knox's narrative, Carson's continuing inquiry into the puzzle of Michael's life, an active composition linked closely with stingy fragmentation and careful translation. Carson offers us a narrative constituted by the accretion of forms, a composite. In this way, a composite work of the contemporary period, I think, stresses or beleaguers the form and concept of the book 
as an invalued component of its narrative structure in unprecedented ways. Other examples include David Foster Wallace's Infinite Jest, which breaks its own spine at over a thousand pages, and I think is going to give me back problems at some point. Um, Mark C. Danielewski's House of Leaves, which cinematically draws us across a series of pages marked by one word in order to typographically imitate suspense. These works deliver delight and deliquest in the comparisons, networks, and narratives drawn from their various parts. It isn't, after all, Shade's poem, Pale Fire, or Kinboat's commentary alone that make Nabokov's Pale Fire so electric, but the magnetic misfiring that occurs when they collide. This dressing of the book's form occurs in part, I think, because the efficacy of the book as a technology has never before been so called into question. Advances in computer technology and digital media make widely rhizomatic structures available in ways that print media simply cannot imitate. We can duplicate and click at the click of a button, hand out, <laughs> excise, and reorganize. But I think that the contemporary composite work, instead of rejecting the digital and turning nostalgically back towards print, or alternatively, rejecting the book as an obviated form, will experiment by being both by assembling a multitude of forms for its own purposes. These works, after all, mark a contemporary moment distinguished by theories of hybridity, networks, hybridity, I got it in there, networks and assemblage. They synthesize the theoretical by being embedded in the material realities of bookmaking, publishing, and composition. One might wonder, in conclusion, can the form and concept of a book contain reverberations of this scale and plenitude? It can and has, and will continue to do so, not by acting as a static and discrete object, but through its many social and collaborative connections, by acting as a meeting ground for many minds, theories, and practices, by refusing neat and tidy, perfect formation, and instead by wearing its scenes inside out, displaying the material and linguistic forms of its composition, its errors, mishaps, and its social collisions between editor and author, community and nation, genre and theory in short by acting as a composite.